Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday. It's the 13th of September and this is the original Money Talk with me, Peter Lewis. You can find this podcast on Substack, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts, where we're one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Apple has unveiled the iPhone 15 at its latest product product launch earlier today as it closes in on Samsung as the world's largest handset maker. The company announced the iPhone 15 and iPhone 15 Plus starting at $799. It also unveiled the iPhone 15 Pro and Pro Max starting at $999. Apple confirmed its new iPhone will not feature its proprietary lightning charging port after the EU forced it into the change. The tech giant said that the iPhone 15 would use a USB-C cable as the universally accepted standard. Country Garden creditors voted to extend repayments on six onshore bonds worth 10.8 billion yuan, that's about $1.5 billion, by three years. Creditors approved extending six out of the eight bonds, while the other two bonds saw voting delayed. The firm has so far avoided defaulting, but recently warned it still could after posting a record first half loss of almost seven billion US dollars. The latest Bank of America fund manager survey has shown a dramatic shift out of emerging market stocks and into the US. The closely watched survey reported that investors view the Chinese property sector as the biggest threat to the stability of the global economy. The Bank of America survey suggests that investors are positioning for further pain for China's stock market. Just over a fifth of managers surveyed said they thought shorting Chinese equities was the most crowded trade in financial markets. Consumer price inflation in India has slowed more than expected, easing to 6.8% in August from 7.4% in July and below market forecasts of 7%. Food inflation fell to 9.9% from 11.5%. Despite the slowdown in August, inflation stayed above the central bank's target of 2-6% for a second month. On today's programme, I'm joined by Hal Hong, Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group, and from the USA, Tony Nash, founder of Complete Intelligence, and with a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, and take a look at my daily newsletter. On Wall Street Tuesday, tech stocks came under pressure as shares of Apple and Oracle fell, dragging the Nasdaq Composite Index lower for the first day in three. The Nasdaq slid 1.1% to 13,774. The S&P 500 dropped 0.6% to 4,462. Meanwhile, the Dow declined 18 points or 0.1% to 34,646. All seven of the so-called Magnificent Seven tech stocks retreated on Tuesday, led by Tesla, which sank 2.2%. Shares of Apple fell 1.7% after the company unveiled four new iPhone models and two updated watches on Tuesday. Investors were disappointed in the incremental nature of the upgrades and lack of surprises. Oracle tumbled 13.5%, their worst day since 2002, after the software group on Monday reported slowing cloud sales growth, lower than expected quarterly revenue, and weaker than projected forecasts for its next quarter. 
Chinese stocks were lower ahead of key economic activity data from the mainland on Friday. The Hang Seng Index fell 71 points or 0.4% to 18,026, having been down as much as 1% earlier in the session. It was the fifth day of losses for the city's benchmark index, losing 4.3% over the period. The tech index was down half a percent. JD.com sank 0.7% to a new record low of 124 Hong Kong dollars and 70 cents. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index was 0.2% lower at 3,137. Shares of real estate developer Country Garden climbed 3.9%. This came after creditors voted to extend repayments on six onshore bonds. And futures markets are pointing to a rise at the open for the Hang Seng of about 0.8% or 150 points or so. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And on this Wednesday morning, let's welcome our guests. We have with us, first of all, Hao Hong, who is Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group. Morning to you, Hao. Morning, Peter. And over in Houston, Texas, in the USA, we find Tony Nash, who is the founder of Complete Intelligence. Good evening to you, Tony. Hi, Peter. Good evening. Now, the latest Bank of America fund manager survey has shown a dramatic shift out of emerging market stocks and into the US. The closely watched survey, which polls 258 money managers with 678 billion US dollars in assets under management, reported that investors view the Chinese property sector as the biggest threat to the stability of the global economy. In the September monthly poll, a third of fund managers named Chinese commercial real estate as the most likely source of a systemic credit event, with a proportion more than doubling since last month to eclipse concerns over U.S. commercial property. And China's stock market, the Bank of America's survey, suggests that investors are positioning for further pain for China's stock market. Just over a fifth of managers surveyed said they thought Chinese equities was the most crowded trade in financial markets. And how I'm wondering um, what you make of that. Do you agree? Do you think um, Chinese uh, equities are, are due for further pain? And is the property sector um, in China the biggest threat, uh, the system- systemic threat uh, to the global economy? Mm. Yeah, uh, I'm not surprised by the uh, negative sentiment towards the Chinese market. I mean, after all, you know, it's the worst performing market uh, in the world this year. And I think, you know, Hong Kong market uh, also shared the shared the thing as well. Uh, so I think as a result, you know, because price momentum is an indication of how negative the sentiment has been. So, you know, the result from this survey uh, shouldn't surprise anybody. Uh, I think going forward, you know, because you can, as you can see, uh, there's heaps of policies uh, coming out uh, for the property sector, you know, trying to shore up confidence in uh, in Chinese property. And I think, you know, initially for the first week, we did see uh, sales volume and also, you know, home inspection volume uh, gone up uh, for a few days, but then, you know, fade really, really fast. Uh, so it remains to be seen, you know, so now many cities are moving to remove all the restrictions uh, on house purchase, uh, you know, trying to you know make it easier and more affordable for people to buy houses. Uh, so, you know, this kind of policy is rather dramatic. It, you know, it probably has only been uh, attempted uh, twice or, or three times uh, in the past. And in 2008, it produced a really good result. And again, in 2016. Uh, so it remains to be seen, you know, whether, you know, once you remove all the restrictions, 
you know, whether people will come back to the housing market. Is there a disconnect, how between foreign investors and local investors in the mainland? We know that foreigners are very um, negative on the market. They've been big sellers. They're very underweight. But nevertheless, at the end of the day, they're only a small proportion of the turnover on Chinese exchanges, aren't they? But are, are local investors more positive? Uh, no. Uh, unfortunately, they are just as pes- you know, <laughs> pessimistic as foreign investors uh, well, reason being, you know, nobody's making any money from the market this year, right? So it makes it really difficult. And also now there's a, a new force in town, the uh, quantitative funds. Uh, quantitative funds, you know, trade uh, high, high frequency trades. And, uh, you know, they use uh, quantitative methods to sort of, you know, reap the benefits uh, from many other traders who are not equipped with the latest uh, computer equipment. So I think that's the result. You know, if you, if you look at the quant funds uh, in the Chinese market performance this year, uh, they all did well. You know, many of them are, are registering, you know, very high double-digit gains or even trip, uh, uh, even more than 30% gains. Uh, so, you know, I think that's the result. You know, the complaint in the market you know, is growing louder, you know, because historically, without these funds, you know, there's still a way to sort of uh, circumvent the, the trading rules to make money. And now, you know, even this sort of uh, trading loopholes, you know, is being filled by, you know, this conference. So it it makes it even more difficult to make money in the Chinese market. So I think as a result, you know, the domestic market uh, are are complaining uh, big time as well. Tony, from your perspective over there, um, we know that uh, U.S. fund managers have, have been sellers of, of Chinese equities for a while. But there is also obviously a geopolitical element to this as well, isn't there? In, in that a lot of fund managers are finding it hard to justify to their clients why they're even in the Chinese market in the first place. So I presume that this report is not a big surprise. No, it's not a big surprise. I think, you know, the, the Chinese economic uh, officials... Um, had a lot of sentiment in their favor earlier this year. Uh, had they done some of the measures that they've taken over the past couple of weeks, I think foreign investors would have been very happy um, to uh, invest more in uh, in China, and they would have justified the political issues. They would have pushed them to the side. Uh, but because uh, the central government and local governments have been so slow to bring about these measures, um, there is there's inertia, and that inertia has become negative sentiment. And I think now it's going to be very hard to get foreign investors, at least American investors, really interested in China, because it's gone from a financial opportunity to a political liability, and and really that financial opportunity is is at least gone for now. Mm. I mean, what stands out this year is the huge outperformance of U.S. equities compared to Chinese equities. I think it's the biggest gap since about 2002. But according to the survey, it looks like it's going to get even bigger because investors are jumping back into U.S. stocks, despite, I suppose, well, what a lot of people would say, pretty stretched um, valuations there. Yeah, well, when you look at um, the the strength of the dollar on a relative basis, when you look at interest rates in the U.S., and you look at the incremental nature of tightening in the U.S. compared to the easing we have in, in some other places, um, I think the U.S. market becomes relatively more interesting. Now, that that's not to say the U.S. market is, is easy. The U.S. market is in a transition phase right now where there's a lot of reallocation of uh, portfolios. Uh, because the the sentiment and the the interest by sector is is really changing at the moment. 
Mm. Um, how the, the, the government is, has done its mortgage rate cuts, it's cut um, the down payments as well. It's made clear it's going to try and support the UR. What, what happens next? What, what does it do next? Um, well, some of the cities, as I mentioned just now, you know, removing all purchasing restrictions uh, on property, right? So, uh, and they can give HUCO, you know, which is a, a residency permit uh, for, for many cities uh, to rural households, you know, to sort of uh, uh, um, um, attract them uh, to move to the city, uh, become a city urban uh, citizen, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there, there's still, you know, a few other policy uh, studies up sleeve, up the sleeve. But I think at this stage, uh, as you can see, like you know, there the, the, the there have been plenty of policies coming out, but I think the effects is actually lackluster. Uh, so if you look at uh, the first eight months uh, of sales uh, for this year, it's even lower than last year, right? So in, in many of the cities, and that is concerning, you know, despite all the policy support. Is there something you in particular would like to see uh, being done or the, or the Beijing authorities doing to, to really perk up the market? Because as you said earlier, everything they do, it seems to cause a rally, which is very short-lived, isn't it? it? It just doesn't seem to have legs, any rally that we've seen um, in, in the last few months. Is, is there anything um, that you would like to see that would make this rally more sustainable and make Chinese equities more attractive? Yeah, well, it, it is not about, you know, saving the Chinese stocks. I mean, the Chinese stocks is, you know, can respond to the economic cycle itself. I think the uh, Chinese property is the biggest asset class in the world. It's worth 500 trillion yuan, right? So it's, it's just huge. Uh, so, you know, it, it's imperative to save it. And, and, and I think that is the reason why there's so many policies come out aiming to save, to rescue the sector. But the problem is that, um, you know, the uh, property prices are so high, right? So if you look at the uh, house price to income ratio uh, in China, it's the highest in the world. In, in many of the big cities like Beijing and Shanghai, um, um, the prices uh, in terms of income is even higher than, say, Hong Kong and New York. And of the top 10 most expensive cities in the world, I think China takes over five. Right? So it's just staggering. So I think once price gets to this kind of level, you know, households find it sort of exhausting, unaffordable to to buy, and then at the same time you still have the oversupply situation going on. You know, on, on one hand you have the the new home is still being built, right? So they're like uh, six billion square meters of uh, residential uh, buildings under construction, and then at the same time you know, because the price is so high, you know, so. Um, the government is trying to shore up confidence to attract people back to the property market. Uh, the second-hand listing this year has, you know, exploded basically, right? So, you know, as the policy come out, there are more and more secondary listings coming to the market. And even to just to clear this kind of inventory takes close to two years mm-hmm. at, at the current speed. Uh, so, you know, so on one hand, you know, you have a very expensive uh, restrictively expensive uh, property sector, and then on the other hand, you have an oversupply situation. And I think that's just the reason why uh, the market failed to respond uh, to policy initiatives. Mm. Tony, from from over there, do you see the Chinese housing market as being the biggest threat to the global economy, or the biggest maybe systemic credit event here? Is that is that what we're heading to? Chinese real estate, U.S. commercial real estate are the two. Um, main credit events that are yet to happen. 
uh, and when they do happen, it's going to be painful. They're both going to be painful for everybody. And I think once one happens, uh, the other will happen. There is only so much uh, governments and local officials can do, whether it's in the U.S. or in China, to keep markets from clearing. So, you know, the problem that we have in the U.S. with commercial real estate is we have uh, commercial properties that are marked to a level that's higher to market. They're valued at a level that's higher to market. In China, you have properties that are, you know, markets can't clear, so they're marked to a value that's higher than market. And so um, there are a number of uh, other dependencies, the solvency of banks and other things that are linked to the valuations of those assets. Uh, and once that happens, it um, it it cascades through the economy and it, it really it's going to hurt. Is it going to be a black swan event in the sense that people just aren't really prepared uh, for this? Or is there a, a growing awareness um, in the U.S. Of, about the risks from the property sector, both in, I mean, maybe in the U.S.? But I, I should imagine most people are not particularly aware of what's going on in the Chinese property sector. Well, I think both governments are trying to slow the event down. They know it's going to happen, but they're trying to slow it down through. In the U.S., with uh, with the uh, regional banks, we had the BTFP, which was from the federal government, which is a, a funding program for regional banks, because uh, a lot of the issues with regional banks have to do with um, commercial real estate. In China, they're doing similar programs to slow the markets down so that we don't see things bottom too quickly. Um, mm. Things will bottom, but we need to slow down that deceleration um, of those prices so that somehow you know, we can make it up. So everyone knows there are going to be credit events, very large credit events, mm. um, but the, uh, whether it's the monetary officials or the, you know, say the you know, other governing, governing officials, they're just trying to slow this down so that it doesn't disrupt things too abruptly. I'm wondering what could be the trigger that actually makes it um, a global credit event. I, I suppose maybe in China, it could be the bankruptcy of a very large uh, Chinese property developer. We know Country Garden is, is struggling to stay afloat. What, what, about, in the, what about in the US? What, what could be the trigger uh, for this event? Uh, it could be... Um, yeah, it, it could be bankruptcy of a large commercial real estate. It could be ongoing bankruptcies of regional banks, because in the U.S., a lot of the financing of commercial real estate is from these regional banks. So it could be more of those regional banks blowing up. It could be even highly urbanized cities in the U.S. potentially going bankrupt because they don't get the tax, uh, the taxes from those commercial real estate um, uh, buildings. Um, so there could be a number of things that could happen uh, as a result of uh, commercial real estate in the U.S. So, you know, it, it, it it's unlikely to be something that we can name. It'll likely come from something unexpected that will eventually cascade into the broader market. How when you hear this, does, does this worry you? I mean, we could have a credit event simultaneously in the property sector in both China and the U.S., yeah, Tony's right. You know, it will be very difficult to pinpoint what could be the catalyst, you know, to sort of catapult the, um, the, the Chinese credit system into, into tailspin. Um, and also, you know, as you can see, Country Garden, you know, seems to be able to extend, you know, its uh, credit terms and also, you know, pay, pay back the creditors on time, uh, in, in, in recent months, uh, despite 2.4 trillion yuan, uh, worth of, uh, loan that is on the balance sheet. 
uh, and no, oh, sorry, uh, that's uh, Evergrande, and also Country Garden has about 1.4 trillion yuan uh, loan of the balance sheet as well. So you know, and, and just imagine, right? So these are just two developers, even though they are they are the largest developers, you know, in in China and probably in the world. But you know, if if you look at you know, there are like hundreds, like at least one hundred very significant large. Uh, property developers in the world, and they all have similar sort of financing structure. <laughs> so just imagine that. Mm. <laughs> and each each year, each year, each year, the the Chinese property sector sells about you know ten to to twelve trillion yuan uh, worth of property. And I think in two thousand and one, we, we we sold eighteen trillion yuan worth of property. Right. So this it's like twenty percent of the Chinese economy. So it's just huge. Mm. So it remains to be seen. Uh, I think the the Chinese government is trying all they could to. Uh, to sort of uh, 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 ring fence the uh, the credit risk, and also you know we had we did have a a credit event uh, two years ago, which is the Haihang, the uh, Hainan Air. So it has about two trillion yuan uh, uh, worth of loan on its uh, balance sheet, and uh, uh, and the government was able to uh, restructure that. But I think this time around, because the entire sector is in trouble, so I think the magnitude of uh, uh, credit risk. That we are we are talking about, you know, has increased exponentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As well as the property sector, there, there's another problem, isn't there, for the Chinese market, and that is um, the yield gap between uh, yields on U.S. government bonds and Chinese government bonds. I think the 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 ten year yield gap between the U.S. and China is now at a record um, high, which in turn is putting downward pressure um, on the yuan. I, I presume this is also um, negative for Chinese stocks. Um, yes, you know, because um, the Chinese uh, uh, yuan has been under pressure for, for some time now. You know, I think the latest lowest one is about 7.36, uh, uh, which is the lowest in, I think, in, in recent years, even including the period of COVID. You know, so you, you haven't seen yuan become to this kind of level. So it really, it's an, uh, firstly, it's an indication of how large the yield gap is. And then secondly, it's, it's an indication of how pes- pessimistic uh, the market has been towards China. Uh, so, but I think having said all that though, you know, if, if you look at the, uh, how the, uh, uh, Chinese currency cycle runs and also, uh, with all the stimulus, uh, policy coming out, uh, the Chinese yuan's, uh, real effective exchange rate is around a cyclical bottom, right? So I, I'm saying, you know, the level between 7.3 and 7.4 is actually, uh, from a cyclical point of view, it's actually a, a cycle low, uh, for the yuan. So, you know, if it is the, the, the bottom of, of the cycle, then it means that, you know, policy has to become sort of effective, you know, to, uh, to, uh, ring fence the, the property sector's risk and also, you know, help the, uh, Chinese economy get back to its, uh, solid footing. Uh, so it remains to be seen once again, but I think, you know, 7.3 and 7.4, you know, could be the lowest point, uh, at this cycle for the real effective exchange rate. Tony, uh, this is obviously um, what's going on here with the yuan and with these spreads. It's very much down to the Fed as well, isn't it? It's not just a Chinese um, issue. We've got the important consumer price inflation data coming out tonight, which might tell us a bit more. Yeah, you know, I think when we look at the uh, Chinese yuan, I I think it's our expectations are that uh, yuan is going to hit about 7.5 in December, January. And I know that sounds extreme. But uh, short of any major policy changes, um, we could be headed toward a, a bit more devalued than people are comfortable with right now. 
But the yield gap, as you mentioned, is so extreme right now. And if the Fed raises any time between now and the end of the year, you know, they'll drain even more money out of the Chinese economy and out of emerging markets. So it becomes uh, even more difficult. So that CPI print that you're talking about, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it comes in, we'll say, an acceptable level and the Fed takes a breather uh, this month and just waits until uh, the September data that comes out in October. So um, so I think there's so much pressure on the Fed right now to just take it easy so that some things can stabilize um, that I think the CPI data will come in an acceptable boundary uh, and um, and the Fed will be will be really pushed to, to keep it uh, stable this month. But presumably, whatever happens, we, we've got to get, even if there's a pause, we've got to get used to the idea that this is going to be a long pause, that there's not going to be any cut in rates anytime soon. Well, yes, um, assuming that there isn't, you know, a major global credit event. <laughs> right. You know, if we, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, major global credit events, we'll see the Fed uh, loosen very quickly. So, you know, we've already started to see real estate markets in the U.S. Um, slow in the last few months. And, you know, that's okay for now. Um, but if we see uh, major credit events in both China and the U.S., we could definitely see the Fed um, do even intermediate rate cuts mm. if it's extreme. There was this report, wasn't there, in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend uh, that was suggesting uh, that there is already a consensus now uh, to pause rates uh, next week, but also uh, a growing consensus amongst uh, Fed officials that the priority now is not to keep uh, raising rates, that maybe they've done enough. Do you think that's, do you think that's correct? I, I do think that's correct. I think we have hit a point in the U.S. where you can definitely feel things slowing uh, in the economy, in transactions. Um, people feel very financially stressed right now, probably more so than you'll see in surveys. Um, so I think if the Fed were to continue to raise, um, it would be a very, di they'd be in a very difficult position, uh, not just in markets, but also politically. Mm. Uh, going into an election year, uh, to have people as financially stressed as they are going into an election year uh, could be an untenable position for the Fed. It makes it seem, how doesn't it, that there is a symbiotic relationship between uh, China and the US at the moment. What the Fed does is clearly impacting uh, Chinese markets and the economy. And at the same time, if we get this credit event or a worsening situation in the property market, uh, that could be the, the issue that uh, causes rates to start being cut. Yeah, well, yeah, I think the, the market is quite hawkish, you know, towards, you know, what the Fed is going to do, you know, once the CPI uh, figure come out. And I think the market is tilted towards a higher CPI than expected. But, you know, for the Fed to move, uh, well, the, for the for the Fed to change its decision criteria just based on one CPI data, and also just because, you know, CPI, you know, you know, uh, is, you know, sort of meeting expectation, it doesn't mean that the, the the Fed has to change its decision criteria. So you know, I'm, I'm with Tony here. You know, you know, the Fed is ready to move to 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 rescue if uh, there is a, a credit risk, global credit risk event happening. I think for China, you know, because the Fed is uh, still maintaining its uh, posture uh, and also given the weakness in domestic uh, property market, you know, it, it actually limits the PBOC's policy choice. You know, towards how to you know rescue the domestic market. But having said all that, you know, what we're seeing, you know, in the global picture, the monetary policy is that, 
China has no choice but to ease. I think the Fed is towards the end of its uh, high, uh, hiking cycle. And I think the BOJ is probably the biggest uncertainty here in the sense that it has to defend its, you know, its uh, 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 YCC, its, its policy intent. But then at the same time, it seems to many people in the market that the BOJ is losing control of the of the yen and also uh, losing control on, on the long end of, of the uh, JGD. So I think, you know, actually out of all the central banks uh, in the world, you know, the, the BOJ could be the most volatile uh, 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 affected to watch out for. Mm, okay, well, there, there's some interesting comments from Governor Ueda over the weekend about um, maybe slowly exiting uh, this ultra-loose monetary policy. Let me ask you about the Chinese economy, How before we, um, we finish. We had um, data that showed credit expanded more than expected. Also, we've had the inflation data, which shows uh, consumer prices at least creeping out of um, deflation. We've got more data coming on Friday in terms of retail sales, industrial production and the like. Do you get any sense from the recent data that maybe um, the Chinese economy now is turning a corner? Um, one data point doesn't make the point, but I think the August data is indeed uh, you know, better than expected. Um, I think, um, uh, you know, because the interest rate is so low now, right? So there's, you know, there has to be incentive for people to, you know, at least refinance or, or, or borrow to expand their businesses. Uh, so, you know, we, we need a few more data points to sort of confirm this. And also in terms of retail sales, you know, if, if you travel domestically in China, uh, like I did in, in, in recent months, you actually notice that um, the Chinese economy is not as badly uh, performing as the economic data uh, uh, is say, is telling us. Uh, so everywhere I go, you know, hotels are fully booked. Uh, uh, train tickets are very difficult to find, uh, and and uh, and the uh, the planes are you know flying at full capacity. Right? It's just staggering. So it's it's a very complete different picture from what the uh, retail sales number is telling us, and, and you know, which is sort of understandable because the retail sales number doesn't include a lot of services uh, that the Chinese consumer is enjoying. So I think as a result, you know, there's a, a split between the reality uh, and also, you know, the, uh, what the data is telling us. Okay, Tony, final comments to you. I want to switch topics a little bit, talk about the G20 that was uh, concluded in India over the weekend. From, from a U.S. perspective, um, how, how do you see uh, the G20 summit? Did uh, anything concrete, anything useful come out of it? I mean, I don't really see a lot coming out of G20 summits generally. You know, I do think that um, it was India's moment to shine. I think uh, Prime Minister Modi did uh, a pretty amazing job holding things together um, and coming to agreement on their statement on Ukraine and, and other things, and also inviting uh, the African Union to join uh, the G20. I, th I think these were some really interesting moves that he oversaw things that he intentionally wanted to get through, especially around Africa. Mm, I mean, it was a bit of a diplomatic coup, wasn't it, really, for, for India and, and for India's diplomacy, that it managed to actually get that um, agreement um, at all. So I suppose from India's perspective, it was a big, uh, big success. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, the some of the statements that were made around Ukraine and Russia, I think for India to be uh, agreeing with those statements was really a coup for the, the U.S. and Europe to get India to agree to those statements uh, that were, you know, critical of Russia, since Russia is such a longstanding ally of India. So, you know, I think 
you know, we are seeing India, we're seeing the U.S. particularly um, really focus on India as maybe not necessarily closest of allies, but a closer ally than they than they've traditionally been. And, you know, all of this is about, you know, power playing in Europe. Right. And so you know, Modi knows what's happening on on all sides as well as very deaf theater. And so it's really India's moment to shine. And I think they, you know, they're being very smart about how they're taking advantage of power politics in Asia and their relationships with the West. Mm, I mean, Narendra Modi is the world leader, isn't he, at playing both sides off against uh, each other and and sitting in the middle and and getting the benefits of it all. Yes, he is, absolutely. And India has traditionally played all sides against, not all, but many sides against each other for a long time to optimize their outcome. But Modi is, is very much a master of that. Mm. And what about Vietnam? Um, President Biden went off to see, uh, went off to Vietnam after uh, the summit. Is that becoming a more important relationship for the U.S.? Yeah, it, it is uh, for a number of reasons. Obviously, as uh, say American companies relocate some of their manufacturing to other places, they're looking to Vietnam and Mexico and a few other places. But also from a Chinese perspective, if you look kind of eastward and you see. Korea, then Japan, then Taiwan and Philippines, and now Vietnam as a U.S. ally, it really starts to um, it really starts to make a mark after a while that um, that these countries really are allied with the U.S. and they're not necessarily allied with you. So, I would expect China to really change some of their diplomatic tones um, with some of their neighbors to try to um, uh, to build relationships. They'll, of course, start with Vietnam because they do have a good relationship. Um, but um, but I would expect them to soften. I mean, they've really softened from the wolf warrior position of, say, a year ago um, to where they are now. And I would expect China to soften a bit more for its Asian neighbors. Mm. How just very quickly from you on, on this. I mean, it's um, it doesn't change the fact, does it, that Vietnam is still pretty close to, uh, to China and very dependent. Its economy is also very dependent upon China. Mm, yeah, well, I think the uh, the the Vietnamese is uh, sort of uh, are doing very well. It's sort of uh, like a China back in the nineties, right? Thirty years ago, you know, the the whole country is very focused on economic development. And as you can see, you know, recently, you know, many of the U.S. Uh, manufacturers is relocating their production facilities to India and also to Vietnam as well. Mm-hmm. Vietnam is a country of you know close to a hundred million people. You know, it's it's very substantial uh, in terms of labor force. And, you know, what is a big plus to that country is that, you know, they're really focusing on economic development while, you know, China is, seems to be kind of preoccupied with other things. Mm. Okay, well, thank you both very much for your thoughts this morning. Have a great day. That's Hao Hong, who is Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group, and Tony Nash, who is the founder of Complete Intelligence over in the USA. <laughs> I'm joined now by Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Morning to you, William. Morning, Peter. Now, more confusion in the uh, the Japanese currency markets and the bond markets. The dollar surged to its best week since February uh, and its highest weekly close since December um, last week. But it looks like both the Bank of Japan and the PBOC are, are, are stepping in to try and bolster uh, their economy. We saw a big jump in the yen on Monday after Japan Bank of Japan Governor Kazuo Ueda said in an interview, it's possible the central bank will have enough information and data by the year end to judge if wages will continue 
continue to rise. This had quite a big effect, didn't it, on the uh, on the currency markets and also on yields on the on the uh, JGB. True, and it was such an, an an innocuous comment, if you will, in many ways. I mean, I think the whole idea that the BOJ saying that you know within three or four months we'll have enough information to know what to do next. The idea that's going to move markets in, you know, September of 2023 is, is a bit yeah. fascinating. But it does suggest that, you know, certainly investors have they've been just so used to Japan being on autopilot essentially for 20 years now that the slightest hint that there might possibly at some point in the distant future might perhaps be a change is enough to move the market. So it is interesting. <laughs> it, it does make you wonder, though, what, what more information does the Bank of Japan need um, on, on wages? It's had several months of it um, now. Wages are rising because of the pay settlements. We, we know that. So it, it sort of it slightly confuses me as to what exactly they're waiting to see. And to add to the confusion, one of Prime Minister Kishida's uh, ploys at the moment to boost his approval rating is to boost the is to boost Japan's minimum wage, which you could argue will not really help the inflation trajectory as well. Um, but I think in many ways the BOJ is looking at the international landscape. They're looking at the war in Ukraine, you know, Russia and Ukraine to get a sense of where oil prices might be three to six months from now and where food prices might be three to six months from now. And that will have important bearings on Japan's inflation outlook. But for the moment, I think that it's very reasonable to, to believe that the BOJ is still on hold for the foreseeable future. And when you look at the fact that China is slowing down, the fact that the BOJ has been talking more and more about how the feedback effect from China is going to affect the BOJ's thinking, that probably will have some you know, ameliorating effect on Japanese inflation going forward as well as, as China experiences a bit of deflation and maybe even exports a bit in Asia. I'm wondering, is, is the BOJ losing control of both the, the yen and the, uh, the, and the bond markets? Yes, I think in many ways it has. I mean, remember back in December, we were talking about how the slightest tweak imaginable that the BOJ was making to allow 10-year yields to rise to about 0.5% caused panic in the global financial system mm. and the boj spent the next month mopping that up and i think in many ways the boj is worried about taking you know the sort of the financial butterfly effect if you will any slight change in tokyo at the moment is going to have ripple effects around the globe and the boj i think is, is petrified of being blamed for some kind of global incident and at the same time the nikkei stock average is you know having one of its best bull runs in about 30 years and so if you're the boj do you want to be responsible for pulling the rug out from underneath that so it's a very complicated moment for the bank of japan so i think for the foreseeable future they just will keep things in autopilot. You can't help feeling that the markets are building up to something big um, here. Okay? We've got the yen um, heading towards 150. We've got the 10-year Japanese bond yield now um, at 0.7%. Uh, I think that's the highest it's been since when? Since about 2014. Um, you get the sense that they're building up to maybe do a big test of the Bank of Japan's resolve. Uh, they are, but in some ways, it's out of Japan's hands in terms of the Fed, right? I mean, I think in many ways, a lot of the decisions in Tokyo will be based on whether or not the Federal Reserve is done raising interest rates. And, mm -hmm. you know, given the comments coming from Fed officials, it really is impossible at this point to figure out if the Fed will pull off one more rate increase or if they're done for the foreseeable future, will they be cutting rates in 2024? And I think for the Bank of Japan, that will in many ways dictate their direction because the big issue for the BOJ right now 
It's the tension between U.S. and Japanese yields and the way that that's causing ripple effects in Japan's financial system. So I think before the Fed can really, but the BOJ rather, can figure out what it's going to do, it has to know what Jerome Powell is thinking for the next six months. Mm. Well, we might find out a bit more news today. We've got uh, some important inflation data coming out of the U.S. That could have a, a, a presumably quite a big effect on the Fed's thinking. Absolutely. And also, uh, later today, we believe we're having a, a cabinet reshuffling announcement from Prime Minister Kishida. And I think that will also be a fascinating moment in terms of figuring out where Japan's economic policy is going at the moment. We do not expect big changes, but, um, you know, surprises can happen, I guess. By tomorrow, we'll figure out a bit more about where Japan might be heading for the next six months or so. Mm. And you mentioned the Japanese markets um, earlier. Um, they're having a stellar year, aren't they? Uh, the, the Nikkei 225 up 25% um, year to date. I mean, this partly is due to, I presume, the weak yen. It is, certainly. And I think also, you know, many, anyways, I think many, many ways Japan is benefiting from uh, the chaos you're seeing around the globe. I think when investors are looking at the major markets out there, Japan is the, the least risky one at the moment, a bit of a safe haven, if you will. I mean, you know, credit words do. Tokyo has been trying in the last 10 years to increase corporate governance, to improve corporate governance. That's paying off now to some extent. That's a good thing, right? But I think in many ways, Japan is benefiting from chaos around the world and uncertainty around the world. And we're seeing that uh, manifest itself in the stock market, which, as I said a moment ago, complicates the BOJ's decisions because the Bank of Japan does not want to be responsible for costing Japan's best bull run in stocks in a long time, a rally that's even pulling people like Warren Buffett uh, into Tokyo. Mm, but for companies, for Japanese companies, I mean, this escape that Japan's now managed from, from deflation and also uh, the sliding yen and the fact that money is basically free, cheaper than free um, at the moment, it, it's really boosted uh, Japanese companies' profit margins, haven't it? I think their pre-tax margins hit a new all-time highs in the second quarter. Indeed, which is a, one reason why I think today's cabinet reshuffling uh, news will be in, important, because I think in many ways, global investors, they're still looking for signs that Tokyo, you know, the Japanese politicians are reading the room, that they're realizing the extent to which investors are interested in Japan. They're coming back to Japan. They're just waiting for politicians in some ways to signal that they're taking steps to revitalize the economy, to increase competitiveness, to address inflation. And I think the important thing is for Japan to validate, the Japanese politicians to validate the bullishness we see on the part of investors. We haven't seen it yet. I Hopefully we'll be seeing it in, in the days and weeks ahead. Fingers crossed. And presumably what investors would also like to see is um, some more structural changes to the economy, maybe to change uh, the composition of the workforce, to get, more, um, to get more women into the workforce, maybe to encourage more foreigners to come and work in, in Japan. Yes, indeed. I think, you know, one of the interesting dynamics that might happen over the next 24 hours with this cabinet reshuffling is, is that Prime Minister Kishida is, you know, rumor has it he'll be naming five women to his cabinet, which will be a record for him. Mm -hmm. So perhaps it is a sign that finally, 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 this government realizes the importance of, of gender equality and taking steps in that direction. So that is something that could give investors a sense that things in Japan are or perhaps moving in, in a better direction going forward. But again, um, we'll see how it goes. And presumably that'll be a, a big signal to companies as well to also think about the compositions of their boards, which have, you know, the, the big companies, very, very few board members are women. 
Indeed. But I think in many ways what we also need from Japan is policy shifts, right? I think in many ways there's been a lot of rhetoric and a lot of, uh, you know, sort of best case, you know, in many ways encouraging companies to diversify and to increase their female uh, board ratios, and that's great, but we probably need uh, a lot more in terms of policy steps to incentivize companies to do that. If not actual quotas, then tax incentives or basically giving companies that have a better breakdown of a better better ratio of female management, more advantageous access to government contracts, perhaps. There are things that Japan could be doing to ex- to accelerate the, this, this trend towards uh, female empowerment. And as its economy economy improves, is Japan making bigger strides on the global stage as well? We've just seen Fumio Kishida come back from the G20 summit in New Delhi, which was really dominated, wasn't it, by India and the US and also by the absence of President Xi Jinping. We didn't hear an awful lot about Japan's position um, at the summit and what Fumio Kishida um, was saying. But what did they get um, out of the G20? Well, I think the absence of Xi Jinping in India actually played into Japan's hands to some extent. I mean, I think it gave Prime Minister Kishida and U.S. President Joe Biden a chance to sort of hold court, if you will, at the G20 uh, without China's leader being there. And if you look at some of the comments that we saw from from Biden, from Kishida about the Chinese economy, um, it did give them a, a chance to fill that void to some extent. But, you know, I think in many ways... Prime Minister Kushida really is very super focused on domestic concerns. Um, his approval rating is quite low, and I think in many ways his, you know, his, his efforts for the next year or two, uh, assuming he stays in power, will be focusing on boosting wages and containing inflation. So domestic, domestic, domestic. Okay. Well, William, always good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Peter. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. <laughs> You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you tomorrow. Joining me to discuss them are Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. Also with me to discuss climate change and the impact on Hong Kong is Lawrence Yu, Executive Director at Civic Exchange. Please join me again tomorrow. Money Talk.